Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, I have Derek Samford with me. Derek is a Senior Director of Product Security at Avalara. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Harshal. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I, I love to talk about AppSec, so I appreciate the opportunity for me to get up on my soapbox for a little while. Fantastic. And we just talked about this. You're into music. I'm not so much into it, so I, I don't know if you can have a really intellectual conversation about music so much, but at some other <laughs> point, maybe I'll educate myself on it. Derek, why don't you tell the audience about a little bit of your background, what you do, where you are, and uh, what you're interested in, what your focus is in security? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am Senior Director of Product Security at Avalara. I'm responsible for all of the product-facing security requirements and standards and driving security initiatives throughout engineering. I have a pretty unorthodox background. It's not the most uncommon thing in engineering these days, but it's less common than it used to be. Uh, I am a, a high school and dropout. I don't have a college degree or, or certifications. When I was 12, I was at a computer fair. I had just gotten my computer and I found a Slackware Linux CD and uh, I, I kind of deep dived off the edge of technology very early on. I got fascinated with security. I spent a lot of time on BBSs in the 90s and that led me to early career in the security field, right? So back in the day, <laughs> there wasn't security roles. The abuse desk was run by network engineering teams. So I cut my teeth on network engineering for the first about five years of my career. I was either a network engineer or a network operations center manager. And throughout those five years, I was in inevitably responsible for the security of the network, the abuse desk, responding to forensics, all that sort of work fell into my specialty. From there, I pivoted my career, sort of looking to expand my technical capabilities and my horizons. I joined Citrix back in about 2004, and I spent about five years there leading scalability and performance testing and building a provisioning system for virtual machines well before that was a, a common thing. During that work, I got to know NetApp really well, and I ended up in field support for about four years as a, again, performance and scalability expert. My job was to go from site to site, identify what problems were holding back the performance, whether it was the network, whether it was storage, those sorts of things. And this was a period of my career that I was outside of security, about the only time that I wasn't involved heavily in it. And that was really interesting and it helped me develop a lot of empathy for real world problems, right? Being in support, being in the field, solving those problems that were keeping customer, holding customers back gave me a different lens to look at the industry from. From there, I went back to Citrix again. My former boss had asked me to come back. They were working on a security product, Zen Mobile, a mobile device management product. Uh, he knew my experience. He'd worked with me and he wanted me to come lead the technical side of that work. During that work, I pivoted back into security, obviously, due to the nature of the product and built a security validation team within the, that organization that was dedicated to testing the security in every release, not just once a year, but ensuring that we consistently tested for security, validated for regressions, made sure our regression was functional, all that good stuff. 
After that, I moved over to MobileIron, leading their cloud security team. And MobileIron is another mobile device management company. And eventually uh, was promoted to manager and led the application security team, at which point I was recruited for my current role, which has been a phenomenal opportunity. I got the opportunity to come over and build the application with the product security organization from the ground, right? And I, in particular, the application security function and the adversarial functions early on were the big focus. We've grown and expanded since then. Yeah, that's kind of the road that led me to where I'm at now, uh, where I've gotten to build a, a large global product security team that's very modern and my experience across all sorts of verticals and, and horizontal areas of the industry uh, have really given me a different lens to look at how we approach this work. That's amazing, man. I love the variety of experience, you know, having started in network ops. And I personally started in network operations as well. I used to work at uh, Sprint in their net, uh, network ops uh, call center. We used to do Juniper router deployments at, uh, <laughs> at cell towers across the country. I believe we were deploying 2G networks back in the day and it was revolutionary technology at that point. Uh, fun fact, I actually worked on the first 5.8 gigahertz radios in the country. We were a public ISP. We were a wireless ISP back in 2000. <laughs> and wireless is where I cut my teeth well before it was a thing that was in our homes. That's awesome. You know, the thing that, that I've, I've noticed is, you know, having a variety of different roles outside of security it helps you build a lot of perspective on how different teams operate and how they get their business done and what role security or other types of things play in their day-to-day. -day. So it gives a very unique perspective for a security person. You start building a lot more empathy for those different roles, especially when you're asking them to, you know, do more things for security or fix security bugs or what have you. What's your perspective? Has this experience helped you take sort of a, a differentiated approach? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, from my perspective, empathy is one of the most important aspects to have as a security practitioner. And that hasn't always historically been the case in our industry. We're often beating people up and saying they're doing things wrong and, and approaching things from a very stick versus carrot approach, right? But from my perspective, what I tell my staff is that engineering, these product development teams, they're our customers. They're out there trying to do their job to the best that they possibly can. And everybody wants to do a good job. Not everybody is equipped with the tools, the training or the knowledge or the experience to do things the right way, especially under the timelines and the deadlines it takes to deliver software, right? There are products that need to be delivered. There are features customers ask for and, and meeting those needs is important. But nobody out there is actively wanting to do a bad job at the thing they do. Or, or if they are, there's very few people, <laughs> right? Most people want to excel. So what I look at my team is we are force multipliers and enablers. And it does, like all the experiences I've had, when you see people who are suffering from outages, who are down, it gives you empathy. Like it's easy to make a security change that causes customer pain or a customer outage, right? It's, it's the most common complaint I think about security and recommendations to engineers. And it's one of the reasons I think many security practitioners are a little bit afraid of the application security side of things. And they sort of dev tends to be able to run over security a little bit because they say, well, we can't do that. Having a broad perspective enables me and, and my team to approach those problems differently, right? Rather than say, just you must do this thing. If an engineer has an issue that with the remediation, what we often look for is, well, what's the pragmatic solution? And are they right, right? Instead of just this adversarial relationship that security can develop with engineering, we have a very 
very cooperative relationship. And I think the other thing that having a breadth of experience in the technology can help with is being thoughtful about defense in depth. You know, the other side of that coin, right, is that I've worked on networks and I understand the network security layer very well, but I've also led QA teams and I've also led development teams. <laughs> and having experience across all of those facets means that like I can think about, well, what do we need to test at what layer and how do we test everything as early as we possibly can? And what are the controls that will help create real and practical security? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned your team as the enablers and the team that empowers the developers from a security perspective. Now, one end of the spectrum could be your team can just say, hey, these are the security things we recommend you do. And it's totally up to you. You can do it or you don't. If you don't want to do it, it's your choice. Like That's in the one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we already know is that, you know, people, security people coming in with a hammer and saying, thou shalt do this, right? How do you find the right middle ground? And what do you expect from your team to deliver? And what do you expect the dev teams or engineering teams to deliver? So first of all, my team is a team of builders, right? So when we run services or build services, we don't hand off SAS or SEA or, or our application posture service or, or any of the tools that we run. We don't hand those off to external teams to run. We are builders. We run our tools. And so we operate in the same environments with the same tool sets that dev and operations do to run our services. Again, this is to force empathy on my team as well. They should understand the real environments we're working at, not theoretical environments that they're trying to secure, but really what how understand the impacts of their suggestions, right? But the first thing to answer your question about how do you find the middle ground? So we have, and it was one of the earliest things I did, but we have a strong security champions program. We have very active communication with the engineering team. And it's just something I'm incredibly proud of. I mean, we've done a recent survey and so far out of, you know, we've gotten a pretty solid response rate and we got a four out of five <laughs> review, which is to get security, to get high reviews from engineering is not a trivial thing. Uh, but the reason for that is collaboration, right? We do say you must do things a certain way, but we don't develop those standards in a silo. We create open feedback processes and our security champions are involved and enabled to give feedback on the standards that we create. So what we don't end up with is standards that don't align to what engineering is doing. We don't create these arbitrary work patterns that are in opposition to a direction engineering is pursuing. There's a phrase I use with my team a lot that I've stolen directly from Bruce Lee, and it's be like water, right? <laughs> if you try to come at engineering and you move hard, you beat resistance, right? And the best thing you can do as a security leader is identify what patterns and what things engineering wants to improve that will enable you to meet your goals, but also accelerate engineering's, right? Yeah. So... When we look to what initiatives we're going to pursue, we tend to look at what engineering is doing and identifying how we can make those patterns that they want to pursue secure and still meet our goals and our objectives of ensuring secure software delivery. So yeah, that's <laughs> the first step for me is very much collaboration and assimilation of directions people are going, right? One of the things that Avalara is focused on is building a unified cloud infrastructure platform. Well, my team develops security features directly for that platform, we contribute code and features to the platform so that we're not asking these teams to just deliver or take away from their roadmap. We're just collaborating and creating more value through momentum. 
Yeah. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this. So when you say collaborate with the engineers and you talked about, you gave the example of we don't develop security standards or policies in a silo. Can you share an example of when you decided to build a new standard or a new policy? What did that collaboration actually look like in practice? Yeah. So my team is very async. We are Slack driven. That is just the way I built my team. We were remote before everybody became remote. <laughs> and it's worked out very well for us because we are, it makes us more suitable to be a global organization. So we have a process and a government's process that specifically invites input and sign off, right? So when we make a standard, we're not just making a standard and handing it to engineering. We create a working group. We pull, you know, let's say it's, I don't know, I'm just going to use an arbitrary one, a key management standard, mm -hmm. uh, something engineers will care about. How, how, what, what do I have to rotate my tokens? Does this impact my auth? Are we aligned to the current identity solution we use? All of that stuff needs to come into play when we're building a standard. We shouldn't just build a standard that we're unable to meet, right? So we will advertise that we are creating a new standard to our security champions. And that is an open invite. Anybody who wants to be involved in standard creation may be involved. Period. It doesn't matter if you're a junior who's just started a security champion or you're a principal architect, you are invited to be a part of the process. One of the things that's helped us as an organization is that we don't do these shadowy backroom things that security often gets caught up in. Well, they go off in a corner, develop a solution and think they have solved for everything in the world. And you go to engineering and they say that won't work for about 30% of our systems. And then you're on your back feet. We try to avoid that, again, through collaboration. We create these open Slack channels, again, public Slack channels. So if anybody needs to invite somebody, they're invited in. We have sign-off by not just security, not just like the CTO, but by the uh, head of architecture, by operations, right? We don't allow standards to be shoved through on the organization without input and feedback. So yeah. it makes it a lot easier to enforce a standard that everybody has already agreed to and sign up to at like, not just like the executive level, but any individual contributors who are very strongly opinionated of which right. engineering there are many. <laughs> yeah. I love this idea that security, well, I guess it's easy for a security team to, you know, go into the back room and say, we're going to build a new container security standard and they, what they end up doing typically is pick up, I don't know, CIS benchmark or whatever other quote unquote best practice and just slap it onto the engineering team and say, hey, this is the new standard, now go do this, right? Like that's <laughs> easy path. But what you've intentionally done and what I also understand is you as a leader, you created the framework like, hey team, we're not going to just take a standard ourselves in a silo and push it to engineering. We're actually going to make it a collaborative process. And as a leader, you're expecting them to get sign off from the other technical leaders outside of security, like architecture, as you mentioned. So as a leader, your job is to make sure you set that right framework, push the team to collaborate outside of security and get that buy-in. But then once you have that in place, whose responsibility is to make sure that the dev teams actually follow that standard? Is it you or is it engineering? It's a mix. So I'll say it's our responsibility to report. Engineering is accountable for the security of their products. That is kind of the racy model that we have, right? We are responsible for helping the team know if they are not meeting the standards, right? But the engineering teams at the end of the day are accountable for the posture of their products. And this is where the security champion comes in. We have a very formalized role for that where product managers are supposed to work with the security champions in order to prioritize the outstanding security issues that they have, right? 
And the way that we go about doing this is taking a very data-driven approach to these problems, right? And a very automated approach. We want as little paperwork and bureaucracy for the teams as we can possibly create. So when we talk about our tooling, if we are opening at something with automation, we should be closing it with automation. If it appears, cool. And if it's gone, it's gone, right? The tickets should be seamless and we should remove as much paperwork from engineering as possible, right? The more paperwork they're doing, the less actual engineering work they're capable of doing because you're taking their cycles, just filling out Jira stories and tickets. Hold that thought on the automation. I think that's a great topic for us to talk about, but I want us to go back to that enforcing or not enforcing the standard, right? And what role does security play here? So let's just take that example of uh, key management standard. You know, you align with engineering and architecture, agreed on a commonly acceptable standard. But, you know, as organization changes, there's new teams that come in, new engineers that come in, new engineering leadership comes in. Not everyone is aligned with the standard, but at least you have an agreed upon standard, right? So then when your team's responsibility is to identify non-compliance with that standard, let's say you identify a few systems, teams, processes, repos, what have you. Do you stop at reporting that, hey, guys and gals, like this is not in compliance with that standard and it's up to you to fix it or not? Or you actually take it a step further and do something else with it in terms of highlighting that? Uh, so we, we send out executive reports at the vulnerability level, any issues that have found, and this is a thing that we are consistently maturing and like it ties into the conversation around data a lot. You'll hear me talk about data a whole lot. But the idea here is that we identify the posture of an application and report on the posture of that application. Now, we are also, I show up, not just me, right? But we have a, we have multiple project managers and, and Anthony, uh, my boss, he shows up. But we, in the big room planning, when all the engineering teams get together, we have a delegated process in SDLC. And, and one of the things that we have is that security debt and regulatory work is non-discretional. So that is a directive to the engineering teams around planning that there's not discretion on whether or not you do these things, which helps, right? The argument yeah. isn't about whether or not they should, it's about do they have time? It's generally where we've gotten to these days. Is the team well enough resourced to do all the work we're asking them to do and deliver features that, because you still have to deliver. So you can't just take up 100% of engineering bandwidth all the time. Right. That would be bad for business. <laughs> so we take a middle of the road approach, right? When teams get bad about their posture, they get a lot more attention from us. When teams do well with their posture, on the other hand, when they ask for things like exceptions, we tend to be a little more pragmatic about them, right? Where if a team is just historically not good about fixing issues, they don't get a lot of leeway from us. If a team is really good about fixing issues and they say they need more time, we're more likely to believe that security champion who has fixed all other outstanding issues and just has this one big framework change that is going to take, you know, over 60 days to migrate to a newer version of the framework or migrate away from an end of life framework and those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. So again, it's a very collaborative, right? So teams come to us and they say, well, we can't do these things. Are there other mechanisms? Is there something else we could do to lower the risk? Is there something else we can do to remediate this that won't cause us this level of effort? And we have, you know, again, the security champions and the broader engineering community knows to come to us and work with us on pragmatic solutions to drive security debt down. Yeah. Have you ever had teams come up and say, can we just enable a VAF so we don't have to fix it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a strong arguments. I mentioned earlier about having a strong view of defense in depth and in no way does having a mitigation for a vulnerability remove the need to fix a vulnerability, right? Especially when it comes to 
I take a pretty hard line around software and package maintenance. We have a pretty hard and fast rule around our exception process for this. And that is to get an exception, you have to have a plan. Cool. You might need more time. That's just the nature of software. It's the nature of engineering. Some things are harder to do than SLAs will allow you for, right? And that's, again, one of those areas as an application security leader, you have to be a little more pragmatic than people who are just dealing with off-the-shelf commercial software. You have a lot more work to do to fix an item sometimes. Sometimes it's, you know, months of work. So in those cases, the rule, the hard and fast rule that we have, to my knowledge, never violated, I was... We have a committee now, but I was the exception czar for a few years. <laughs> and that rule is that you don't get the exception without committed work. And so that has created a culture where engineering, for by and large, knows if they're coming to us to ask for severity reduction or more time, that they better have a solid story and their work lined up, or they're just going to get arbitrarily turned down because we have rules. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So this all goes back to the data-driven posture that you're talking about, right? Because it's not just vulnerabilities. It is adoption of security controls and following the, the practices that you all agreed to. It could be a process-related thing. It could be adopting security tooling like key management systems, what have you, which is a great holistic way to look at security posture and driving teams to build more resilient, secure software through adoption of different things rather than narrowly focusing on just managing vulnerabilities. Now, so you've talked several times about data-driven approach. Tell us a little bit more about why data-driven approach and what do you actually mean by data-driven approach for AppSec? Well, so a lot of people, when I talk about data, I don't just mean having a lot of data because that's actually the opposite of what I mean. A lot of security teams I've seen over the years a lot of their work is, is hidden away in spreadsheets or is in a PDF that they hand off the engineering team and like, here's your report, goodbye, right? And that can't be how modern security teams op interact with engineering. It just simply can't. It fails almost 100% of the time unless there is some emergency driving the incident or the, re the remediation, right? Then sometimes you get traction, but that traction is always short-lived, right? But a data-driven approach is it's saying, okay, these are the things that we are protecting against. These are our control frameworks. These are what we will evaluate on. And having a meaningful and consistent way of reporting on that, right? It all starts, everything in any program starts with visibility, right? If I don't know what applications I'm protecting and what components are inside of those applications, I'm blind. <laughs> and being blind is about the worst thing you can be in security. You can deal with known risk. You can deal with an incident with known risk faster, right? But risk that you are unaware of is anathema to good security posture. You can't make educated decisions about what to do next without knowing first what you're managing, right? So I think every program needs to start out with that. And for me, we did a great job. We created a unified security intake process that ran the first couple of years of my program where teams would come in. We would start with threat modeling. Again, consistent data. We use a commercial cloud-based tool. Well, it's on-prem, but <laughs> they also have a cloud tool. We use a commercial tool that enables collaboration on threat models and for them to be persistent, right? One of the mistakes I think a lot of people make with threat models is treating them as a throwaway artifact mm -hmm. rather than a living artifact over time. And what that tool helps us to do is identify the, as you said, it's not just vulnerabilities. It's also what controls you meet and what risks you should be managing. And so threat modeling helps us there. 
So we drove them through this whole process, threat modeling and SAST and SCA and DAST, right? We had our tool chain, the kind of common AppSec things that you do. And that worked well and gave us an inventory. But what we did two years later is what, if I could go back in time, is how I would start. And so what we did two years later was align a single platform for engineering and security documentation. Uh, We use an enterprise architecture documentation system. And our rule to engineering is that we don't send you arbitrary emails to get data. We will change our surveys and data collections and the fields we're collecting and this centralized documentation platform, right? Does your app have PII? What's your business criticality? (laughs) Like what various things about the posture of the application and, and documentation on your DR processes and where those documents live and all of these things that typically come from eight different security teams, right? You got compliance on one end and you have the AppSec team and then you might have, you know, operations or SecOps coming at you during an incident and everybody coming from different angles. And what we've done is unified that we act as that fulcrum point to help unify those processes. And what we've done by collaborating with engineering on these processes is ensured that everybody is looking at the same thing through the same lens and the data we collect is valuable to engineering as well as us, as well as the architecture team, as well as the incident response team, as well as legal, right? Everybody like has visibility to these applications and we document them and it's just a requirement for engineering to do now. If I could go back in time, I would have aligned in the beginning with architecture on that process and procedure <laughs> because starting there, starting with this concept of centralized documentation for applications, especially a platform that lets you do this programmatically, right? I can pull all this information and now I can pull it into other systems. Right. (laughs) How much of that is dependent on engineering maturity itself? Forget about security, but does that fundamentally need engineering processes to be mature enough that they have this system of documenting things that they work on? Well, I believe in feedback loops and processes, right? So Yes, the engineering teams need maturity to get those. And the truth be told, not every team is going to document them as well as every other team. People will get things wrong. But the more you have a central process that focuses on these things that architecture agrees with, that, you know, reliability engineering agrees with, that security agrees with, if you're all aligned on the same things, you start having a lot of eyes looking at the same thing every time a team comes up to review something or propose a new application or propose a new change, any of these things that come up over time, they start to, again, it's a feedback loop. The more you use the process, the same process, the more that that process works. And so at the beginning, it'll be a lot of false starts. It'll be teams doing it wrong. It'll be documentation errors. You will realize that your, your guidance was unclear in areas. There will be mistakes made in the visibility and documentation process. But I mean, one of the things that I believe in, right, I believe deeply in Agile, and I believe that security teams don't operate from those principles often enough. Everybody's tried, we're so afraid of getting it wrong that we try to make things perfect. But perfect is the enemy of good, (laughs) right? And so by creating these processes and funneling the teams through them, over time, the process matures, right? You create the maturity you're looking for and be the change you want to see in the world, right? Right, right. (laughs) So, yeah, it requires maturity, but I think part of security's job is to help engineering teams mature, right? That is part of our role. If a a mature engineering team doesn't need a whole lot of handholding from security, they might get some code wrong. They might miss a vulnerability. They might need some guidance from remediation, but they don't need us day to day telling them how to do their job because they're mature and they understand the holistic nature of software, right? 
and driving these processes that are driven through multiple pillars of the organization creates that maturity by default. That's awesome. So, okay. So that's great. So then you have a standardized process of intake onboarding. So then you start building that inventory of who's working on what, what are the different components of application, maybe even map out interactions with between different applications and then what? Yeah. So the next thing to think about is reporting, right? Right. So you have visibility now and you have, in theory, at this point, you have some level of huge amount of data from a bunch of tools <laughs> and you have a bunch of controls you're aware of and like, or a bunch of risks you're aware of. But what you really need to avoid, and this is another thing, if we'd done it earlier, you know, we started down the road of SOC 2 relatively shortly after I started, right? And we developed controls around SOC 2. But if I could go back in time, <laughs> we would do what we've done now, which is create a universal security framework that aligns the control frameworks, right? So we have a generic Avalara security framework, which results in an application's grade card, right? So that grade card, you give a score for an application based on the controls they meet, based on weighting of certain controls, based on weighting of certain categories, but providing a full framework that, again, it's about digestion, right? Because once you know what your framework is objectively, you can start to say, well, one, you can provide that to engineering. And you can say, these are the controls you must meet objectively, and this is how you measure them, right? That's one of the things is that you should have is controls should not be immeasurable. If you're saying you shouldn't have cross-site scripting, what thing is it that you are saying tells you if you have a cross-site scripting vulnerability? What mechanisms are at play to ensure that that's there? Alternatively, if you are operating in the cloud and you're saying no S3 unencrypted buckets, what tool helps engineering know that without having to just call the APIs, right? Yeah. So thinking about how you provide visibility to the issues to engineering in a consumable way that scales from the bottom, like the granular control level, like here engineering, these are the things you need to do to the executive level. Here is your application's grade, <laughs> right? Like, because the engineers, they don't, they only care about the grade so much as much as the executives are telling them that they need to raise their grade, right? Right. But they care about what is the work that I have to do. And I, that gets lost a lot. And like, in when it talks about remediation guidance is we give, security has a tendency in organizations I've seen to deliver policy without guidance. And you don't want to be too firm in that you must do this, as we talked about earlier, but you don't want to be in the do this in some way and figure it out. If you do that too often, like sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's necessary to say, you know, your product better than we do. This is the issue. And it just, this is particularly true. And when you're talking about application logic and explicit adversarial tests you're doing against applications, right? Sometimes remediation guidance is subjective and requires expertise of the application. But much of work we do in policy is not, right? I'm saying use least privilege on ports means something very specific. Are you, do you have network traffic flowing over security groups in AWS or do you have ports open that are not used? And that is not a difficult thing to discover with VPC flow logs, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. There's all sorts of mechanisms you can provide visibility and provide a view to the engineering team of what their posture is. Yeah. I love how all of this fits nicely together into a, a really strong story, right? So you collect all of this metadata to start figuring out what are the applications, components, who owns it, all of those things. Put more data in to figure out a risk posture and eventually get to a letter grading, right? Some sort of an easy to understand way for developers without having them you know, go on an education journey while they need to be educated on security. But 
they don't have to spend a ton of time trying to understand why this or why that. Like it's very simplified for them in terms of, you know, an easy to understand score, a letter grade, which can be built based off of whether are they using security standards, are they following practices, do they have, are they fixing their vaults on time or not? A lot of those things that you decide that, okay, these are the important factors that contribute to a score, whether compliance or security or privacy or what have you. And then that gives the dev teams an easy way to understand what are the three things that they need to do. That is exactly right. And like one of the things that you mentioned it, right? Like education is a parallel track to all of this. Everything that we do, every process we release, every standard we make that it becomes officially approved, every time we have new tools, we create new training. We have a very strong internal training program. We have, I think it's seven hours of developer-oriented role-based training that everybody has to do when they're hired. And they're required to complete it every year, (laughs) not just like security awareness training, but it's training that my team explicitly has developed focusing on our tools, our processes and our recommendations around security. Now, granted, we we point at things that we say, okay, well, today we're talking about the OWASP top 10. Please go look at the OWASP. Don't use us as the final authority. Right. But in our training, we cover those basics, but we also get very specific about what do we do at Avalara. And that's a thing, another missing piece I've seen before is a a common attempt to take generic training programs, which are helpful, right? I'm not knocking any of the tooling out there that's focused around developer-oriented training, but every organization is going to have things that is customized to them. And the less it's tribal knowledge and the more it's accessible, and like we're, I'm avid, like everything must be in the wiki and everything must have a training associated with it. And so as we build the program, Training is a pillar that holds up every piece of it. Yeah, that's awesome. That is so powerful. It summarizes a nice playbook if somebody was to build a program from the get-go or even, you know, start to up-level their program. This is a nice, you know, high-level overview of what are the things you should do to build a a comprehensive AppSec program. And one of the tidbits I'd give there, just to talk about that, is when I talk about the data modeling, one of the things that Again, there's things that we did great. One of the things we could have done better is what we started this data model, we brought all this data together, but we didn't necessarily always holistically think about how to make sure at a like data analytics level that we could tie together every tool back to the application and the place we had it diagrammed or at the time we, when we first started, we just were using names that we came up with, right? Later on, they became these effectively GUIDs, not, they're not GUIDs, but you know, for lack of a better term, they're all unique names. Mm and Having a meaningful way at the beginning that every one of your security tools associates back to that application name and not just security tools, but your cloud tools, right? What's your AWS tagging strategy? How do your endpoint agents tie back? How do you get full and holistic visibility and thinking about this tagging and data management early so that you have a a complete data model that maps everything back together? is something that would have saved us at least a few months of effort. <laughs> and if That's I could go back in time, I would do it that way from the start. <laughs> Fantastic. Derek, I feel like there's so much more to be discussed in this, going on that topic of data modeling itself and how do you report, what do you report? All of those things are still, maybe we can record it in a, in a different episode. But this is all the time we have today. This has been a phenomenal conversation, Derek. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a great time. I enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, 
I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.